0: Friends, a little guessing game to start us off. Take a guess, if you will, at what city in the United States spends the least amount of money each year on Medicare per person. So who's spending the lowest amount per person on healthcare dollars? And this is to be clear for those who are on Medicare. Who is spending the least going out from the government to healthcare providers? What town, what community? Now, your guess may be like many, maybe you think of some place that's conspicuously young, even though this is about Medicare dollars. Maybe you're thinking about Boulder, or Colorado, or Austin, Texas. But no, the answer is La Crosse, Wisconsin. And it's also true, at least anecdotally, that the people of Lacrosse, Wisconsin talk about death more than any other community in our union. And because of it, you and I are saving hundreds of thousands of tax dollars each year, maybe even millions. Now it's true that Lacrosse is not a massive metropolis, its population is in the 50 to 60,000 range, but it turns out that one man seems to have helped this community change its behavior in an incredible way. His name is Bud Hames, he's a medical ethicist in the Gunderson Health System there in La Crosse. Turns out back in the 80s that Bud saw family after family coming into the healthcare system, often dealing with ailments for years, sometimes decades. Even after all that time, getting into sudden massive conflict when there were major end of life medical decisions that needed to be made. Should grandma be intubated? If my dear husband of 50 years of marriage is unconscious, the prognosis isn't good. Do I pull the plug? But Bud knew that if families would talk about these moments ahead of time, when the patient was still cognitively able to add their voice to the conversation, the results were tremendously different. There was far less conflict, much greater peace, so that families could focus on grieving. So, Bud started training the nurses and the other staff there to make asking the family about an advanced directive, an end of life plan, about as routine as getting a blood test. As you can imagine, at first, people bristle. That's what we do in America when people talk to us about death, right? But over time, as it became a routine part of healthcare at La Crosse, it had this tremendous effect. Now, his work began in the 80s and by 1995, 85% of La Crosse residents had an advanced planning document. By the way, that number across America, even today, is still less than a third, maybe 25% in many communities. By 2015, that number had jumped to 96%. 96% of La Crosse's population have advanced planning documents. Having conversations about the end of life Became so normal that people in the cross, or at least the ones interviewed by journalists from NPR's Planet Money podcast, these residents could gossip with you about the one or two weird neighbors on the block that don't have an advanced directive. Because talking about the end of life in the cross is normal. Not only talking about the end of life, but talking about, of course, then the connotations for the end of life, which is what do I want the end of my life to look like? And therefore, what do I want the rest of my life to look like? My friends, talking about death enables us to live life more fully. Last week, I drew on Psalm 137, the experience of Israel and exile. I shared some majority world testimonies to argue that we in the West have lost the communal aspect of death and grieving. And I shared a little bit about how reclaiming that piece of community, and of course, the conversations that are part of it, that that piece can help us to recover a truly holy thanatology. A theology of death. So I really invite you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. We emailed out the manuscript in Tuesday's uh, quick notes. I'm glad to send it to you again if you contact me, or you can re-watch that sermon on our Facebook page. But that's our first strategy for figuring out how to live a life in light of death. <clears throat> Doing life and death in community is the first strategy that I'm going to commend to you for those of you who are looking to live life well. Now, La Crosse, Wisconsin points, of course, to a second strategy. Talk about your death and think about it so that you may truly live now by talking about death. And to be clear, NPR's Planet Money journalists even talked to kids who made fun of the other kids on the block, the very few, who didn't have their own advanced planning <laughs> documents as children. Talking about their death, however, made them think about what it meant to live well here and now, even for children, to have some intentionality about that. So that to live well, we need to do life and death in community. And we need to talk about our death so that we may truly live. There are also other steps that you and I can take to reclaim a truly Christ-centered approach to death. One of those pieces is to think about our death frequently. The people creating these advanced planning documents are the people who are also giving some cognitive thought, some peace of mind and therefore a little bit of soul about what death should look like. A few years ago, I came across a new app called We Croak. This isn't people who are sharing their ability to make frog noises. No, this is croak in the words of death. Their tagline, find happiness by contemplating your mortality is inspired by a Bhutanese folk saying, which is that to be a happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. To live a happy life now one must contemplate their death five times daily. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't come close to that number on a good day. And death is kind of a piece of my job. So this particular app that they developed sends you a push notification on your phone up to five times a day. Of course, you can change the settings for it to be as frequent as you want. And that notification will share Some kind of quote. Maybe a quote like this one from uh, Lewis Carroll. The king in the Alice of Wonderland said, "'Begin at the beginning,' the king said very gravely, "'and go on till you come to the end, then stop.'" Begin at the beginning, the king said very gravely, and going on till the end, till you come to the end, and then stop. You may not like that quote in particular, but you get the gist, right? Thinking about the end is what enables us to live here in the moment, because we begin to think intentionally about what we're doing with our time and the things we're thinking about and our money and trying to decide whether those actions are lining up with the values that we claim to be true about our own lives? If we claim to be people of the cross, are we living cross-bearing lives? Would our pocketbook tell that story? Does our testimony, our words, how we spend our time, what we spend our time thinking about? Would our life story written down confess the faith that we hold so deeply? We need to do life and death in community. We need to talk about our death so that we may truly live. We need to contemplate our own death so that we can live out our values. And the last piece that I think is so proclaimed so loudly in our scripture passage today is this strategy. Live with the end in mind. Scripture today takes the same approach, the same approach as Bud Hames and the Cross Community, in that it tries to talk about death in order to show us how we can meaningfully live now by painting a picture of the final times. Now, the writer of Revelation was living as a Christian in the Roman Empire, and the threat of death from disease or war. lingered prominently in the tongues of those who were walking around the public square, sharing what they were worried about, what they're afraid about for their kids and their community. Now, much of Revelation is a book of symbolic imagery about the oppressed people's desire for an end of the Roman Empire, but it was also this declaration about God's end game. The ultimate apocalyptic and sometimes unseen, but eventually glorious purpose of God's great remaking of the world. The writer of Revelation sees that vision, the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, the city of God coming to our realm so that God would dwell with us forever. These words from the penultimate chapter of scripture say, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, behold, The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be her people. And God themselves will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. That is good news, friends. It's good news that should inspire us, too, to be concerned with end things. The Greek word telos has been a vocabulary word that's been helpful to me over the years. It comes from the same word as telescope. Telos is about the end, the end point in particular. It's helped to remind me in my life as I've gotten caught up in what's happening in the moment. That what's the end of it all? What's the purpose? What's the end goal? What's the goal? What's the vision? Now, theologically, there are those in the world who believe that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and the best that we all can do on this planet is to accept Jesus into our hearts, to gain the confidence of knowing that while the earth may burn up, that we'll get to ascend into the heavens and we should just enjoy our lives the best we can. That's one vision. But the one that I see shared in Revelation is not about us going up, but about a God that comes down to us to establish a reign of justice and peace and mercy where God, God's self, will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That's the vision of scripture, and that's what should shape our living. Our lives should be walking portents, physical harbingers of a coming kingdom where God lives with us brings everyone into God's home, spreads that table in radical hospitality, uses all of its resources for the good of everyone, knowing that the full knowledge of God inhabiting our hearts and minds and ultimate peace, that is possible for us. So how do you and I make our lives look like that? How do we live now with the end in mind? I think it means trying to make our lives look like the one sitting on the throne. In Revelation, that person is Jesus. The the person on the throne isn't a person at all. The image of Jesus that's shared is a slaughtered lamb. That's right. The last image we get in the Bible for Jesus is a bloody lamb that's been killed the savior of the nations. Now, it's clearly a support for those Roman Christians who were being slaughtered themselves by the Roman Empire, but it also served as a reminder to the early church that those who reign victorious in the kingdom of God are those who follow the way of Jesus, who live lives of nonviolent resistance against the forces of empire. They're those who follow the way of Jesus by giving so others can have request that you and I should read today as much as a financial one is now a demand that we spend our time and our privilege such that today's oppressed peoples might thrive from policy to our pocketbooks. That's what the new city, the new Jerusalem, is going to look like. And so that's what we are called to help make manifest on earth as members of Christ's body. Live with the end in mind, friends. I have one more example of what that life could look like. Some of you may notice in the bulletin, sometimes I write out my name, the Reverend Eric R. Peltz. Well, that R, my middle name is Richard. Now last month marked 13 years since the death of one such servant of God who lived with the end in mind. Richard Calvin Pelts was a blue collar guy who worked for a, that time not well-known pipeline company until his kidneys shut down and the corporation he worked for shuttered. Enron, as it was known, left my father and therefore me and my family with nothing, lived off of social security. But my father used those strategies that we talked about to create a good life Despite the physical loss, the intra-psychic loss, his expectations that he suffered. Since his transfer from Kansas to the southwest suburbs of Chicago in 1990, my father intentionally chose to live life in community. He went to church almost every Sunday. He fellowshiped with the saints of all ages in coffee hour. He even slept on the floor of a high school in Oak Ridge, Tennessee for a week on our youth mission trip. because he knew that living in community means that we find meaning for our lives centered in God who loves us, that connects us intergenerationally. And he always talked about how much he learned from people much older and much younger than himself. Richard lived life in community. My father also talked about death so that he could truly live. Sometimes he would make jokes starting with the line, when I die, or when you're dealing with my big old body. Now, my dad didn't talk much. But when he did, it was about things that mattered. The meaning of life, the consideration of his certain death, policy stands that frankly were politically very different from mine and the people he spent time with. But more importantly, how to make meaning of all of it in the in-between. He lived life in community. He talked about death. He thought intentionally about what life was about, about the fact that his mortality was coming. He lived with the end in mind. Although he never went to college, he knew that the key to his only child's success was education. So he put his nose down and he worked for 30 years under abusive bosses and the corruption of the Enron management that is now well documented, so that he could earn a steady paycheck and to get me what I needed so I could thrive. And by faith, trusting that the rest of the money would come. And thanks to the faithfulness of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Joliet, Illinois, the generosity of the saints who gave to Wheaton College, it all happened. After kidney failure, after years of knowing that he had congestive heart failure, diabetes, my father knew very well that the end was near. But I believe his contemplation of the things of God, the God that is our Alpha and our Omega, the A and the Z of our life, that having that Omega in mind is what helped him to truly thrive. Next year, when I hopefully earn my final academic degree, I won't be celebrating my achievement, although I'll be grateful I've done it, but I'll be celebrating the community that taught me how to live, that taught me how to talk about death so that I would remember how to live that invited me as an elementary schooler to come to funerals for people in the congregation that I Mm loved. A community that taught me how to keep God's end in mind, a kingdom of justice and peace that required our money and what we thought about, and yes, a lot of our time. A father that reminded me of all of these things and a mother too. My friends, we all have losses that we're going to be grieving this season as we transition to whatever the next normal looks like. But I pray that you will take these strategies, root yourself deep in the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus paints for us in the book of Revelation, and try to live a life of hope, A life that looks towards death and says, I did it right. I did it well. A life that looks at the end and knows a God that will say, welcome, good and faithful servant. May it be so for your life, for my life and may we be a community that makes it so for us. Thanks be to God and amen.